Welcome to the Transplant Infectious Disease Podcast. This is Shmuel Shoham, and I'm recording from Tacoma Park, Maryland today. The biggest issue that's going on, obviously, is the coronavirus infection, COVID-19, and how the transplant infectious disease community is dealing with it. Today, we have a special interview with Cameron Wolf, which we'll start momentarily. Before we do that, I do want to take a Second, to thank all the hardworking infection control practitioners, physicians, nurses, epidemiologists, pharmacists, microbiologists, and a army of people working so hard to keep our patients as safe as possible. To get us through this, it's really going to require teamwork, using the scientific method, and thankfully the body's natural healing ability. So let's get started with the interview, which was conducted using Skype. This is the first interview at a distance that we've done here on the podcast. So, Cameron, what have you been up to? A bit hectic, as I'm sure it has been for most infectious disease docs, to be honest. So let me start by introducing our guest. Uh, uh, this is Cameron Wolf, and you've heard of the Cameron Crazies. And uh, are you one of the Cameron Crazies? <laughs> it, was, it was indoctrinated into me very quickly after I arrived at Duke 13 years ago that there would be absolutely no way in hell that I could support Chapel Hill. So I am as, I am as crazy and dark blue supporting as they come. And he is an associate professor of medicine at Duke University. He received his medical training at the University of Melbourne in Australia in 2000 and completed his ID fellowship at Duke. His works have been published in the New England Journal of Medicine, CID, EID, Lancet ID, American Journal of Transplantation, and multiple other prestigious publications. He is the co-author of a brand new article in the American Journal of Transplantation, which we're going to dive into. And he's also the co-editor of a new book on infections and transplantations. He is an active member of the transplant infectious disease team at Duke and works on the Donor-Derived Infection Task Force for the American Society of Transplantation and is actually the lead author of that organization's guidelines on the topic published September 2019 in Clinical Transplantation. Did I uh, miss any of the uh, highlights? Oh, no, I think that's uh, that's a bit humbling, to be honest. But yeah, that, that seems about right. It's, so been a busy, it was, it's been a busy few years, let's put it that way. Very productive, very productive. So it was a few years ago, sorry, a few weeks ago, that I first noticed your ongoing interest. Uh, it almost seemed like an obsession with a yet-to-be-named virus in China. And I noticed that uh, following you on Twitter, and I do recommend to our listeners to follow Dr. Wolf on Twitter because uh, it is a very educational uh, Twitter account that he has. So what drew your attention to this? Um, you know, so I, I, drew, I follow ProMed. Um, I've been following ProMed since I was a fellow. It was introduced to me then as a, as a good way of sort of keeping up with changes in the world. And I think maybe because I think when you train in Australia, it was really um, so much more common than where I am in North Carolina to see most of your patients who travel to all sorts of different parts of the globe and to understand 
what they may or may not have run into was important. And so ProMed at the end of December kind of just started to have a few articles about an undifferentiated um, pneumonia illness appearing in Wuhan and a few who I follow, um, yourself included, um, and a couple of journalists, Helen Branswell and some others who I started following after the Ebola epidemic actually, um, also began sort of just chatting about this and sort of wondering what it would be like and what it was. I think the other thing that honestly caught our attention is that Duke has been pretty fortunate because we've actually got some um, experts here who, whose, whose lab um, is, is really concerned with emerging epidemics and their interface with sort of one health and animal populations. And so actually one of my colleagues in my division, a chap called Greg Gray, has a number of his colleagues actually based in Wuhan of all of all places. And so we felt like we were seeing some pretty intimate and close um, reviews of actually what was happening in the healthcare system there very early on. And before it was kind of even really visible, I think, to many folks outside of China, we were getting some emails from colleagues there going, hey, look, this is really getting pretty busy. You should you should really pay this some attention. So that's kind of what caught my eye. And uh, obviously, you know, things have evolved enormously since then. So was there an inflection point that you said, wow, this is really going to have some legs? <clears throat> you, know, you know, probably the inflection point for me was um, – well, there, may be, there, there would have been a couple. The first was, like I said, receiving an email from a woman who works with our group who's based in Wuhan and is really, according to my colleagues, not um, susceptible to hyperbole. And she wrote a really quite an emotional email sort of early to mid-January saying, look, the hospitals here are really starting to get overwhelmed. This is um, already more out of hand than we ever appreciated. Uh, and the messages that are being received by the local community um, are so misrepresenting the truth of what she thought she was seeing in the hospitals. So that sort of really caught my attention. You know, I, I'll, I'll concede I was more hopeful than many colleagues throughout February that, that this would um, perhaps be contained. Um, as draconian as travel restrictions seem to be, I was actually pretty hopeful for a while that they were going to largely mitigate our, our issues here in the United States. And if, and if uh, you know, maybe a few small cases and clusters might occur in places like Singapore, but at the end of the day, Singapore has a pretty good top-down control over their healthcare infrastructure. And I thought that, you know, there was some hope that things would be relatively limited. Um, you know, clearly I've been proven wrong in the last couple of weeks there as cases have now emerged you know, really sort of now on most continents and particularly heavily in Asia and and, and uh, in Europe. You know, the other thing that was news for us and, and I think focused our attention more than it was an infliction point per se was that many universities and probably both of ours respectively have now campuses all over the world where we do business. And for us, one of those campuses is a, is a jointly um, owned and run campus with Wuhan University and for Duke it was not in Wuhan but sort of halfway between Wuhan and Shanghai and so we also had to then really think pretty acutely about well, hey what does it mean to have some of our staff going over there we frequently have faculty back and forward from from China what does this operationally mean for us 
And I'm sure Hopkins is the same, but on any given day, Duke has you know, upward of a thousand Chinese citizens on an, on our campus at any one time. Mm-hmm. So it sort of it, it really did make us think very quickly about how do we look after these people more than anything else, and how do we you know how do we convey some accurate information to them when they're not getting it necessarily from their Chinese counterpart. Yeah, one of the real cha- challenges is is also trying to make good decisions. I recall my uh, sister-in-law is scheduled was scheduled to give a presentation at a scientific conference in uh, Washington D.C. in a few weeks, and she uh, reached out to me sometime in January saying, "You know, I, what do you think? Should I go?" And I said, "Oh, yeah, it's a no-brainer. Of course, go." But now that conference has actually been canceled. So um, yeah. And I think even today we're starting to find out about a lot of the European can- conferences are now cancelled. I think it was today that, um, or, or in the last couple of days, that uh, you know there's been a, an early warning on ECMID um, in France. There's obviously been some, uh, some I think, frank cancellations now also on um, some of the HIV meetings. And, you know, I, it would be hard to use your crystal ball and predict in two or three weeks' time what this is going to look like. Uh, yeah, this this is certainly very fast moving and uh, quite different than anything that uh, that we recall. Though it is reminiscent of some other things, and uh, you mentioned that in the article that I recommend for everybody who is interested in transplantation to read, and that's in the American Journal of Transplantation about uh, uh, this coronavirus. And uh, you mentioned that you can harken back to some of the other viruses. Uh, what are some of the lessons that we learned from West Nile or from other viruses in terms of transplantation and things we should be thinking about? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I, SARS was before my time in transplant, so I, I'll concede I'm young enough not to have learned any real lessons about transplant from then. But you think of other things that have emerged in the last sort of 10 to 12 years, and we've certainly gone through H1N1, we've gone through West Nile ebbing and flowing and continues to do that. And then I guess um, Ebola and Zika were the two other big things that have sort of impacted transplant in different ways. I guess the, you know, a couple of the lessons, honestly, for me have been to know who in my hospital really is a good sort of is to the ground individual to track epi um you know west nile in particular just caught us off guard i think it was 2012 when there was a sudden real sort of cluster of outbreaks in um, texas and oklahoma and up through the dakotas uh, which really did not follow a preceding trend in any way and so understanding sort of having having someone at your institution or at least someone who you can pick up the phone and call who understands geography and how diseases are spreading has just been very helpful to me. We have a couple of colleagues who work pretty intimately with the CDC and some of their uh, sort of epi folk. Um, That's been very helpful because at the end of the day, we all probably receive phone calls from our colleagues on the surgical side and medical groups asking about donor evaluation or asking about recipient travel. And I think if you don't, as an infectious disease doc, have some sense of where current diseases are spreading, I don't think you can give the perfect advice in that setting. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's probably the biggest thing there. You know, the other thing is, let's be honest, our transplant patients sadly um, often act like the canaries in the coal mine when it comes to some of these conditions. Mm-hmm. You could, I don't think you could have predicted um, based on previous 
illnesses that West Nile would have had such a massive transplant impact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, and yet it was a series of pretty astute clinicians who started seeing uh, that, in fact, the impact on the immunosuppressed was so much more dramatic. Um, conversely, using that sort of um, anxiety, if you will, we were all nervous that Zika would pose us some really significant trouble being a related virus. And yet there was uh, seemingly hardly any impact to the transplant community. So maybe if there's a lesson, it's to, it's to be conscious that our patients may well be um, the bearers of disease that's quite different to what their non-immunosuppressed candidates, uh, colleagues would, would be, and that mm-hmm. we just very astute clinicians. Yeah, and it's it's a challenge because we want to not be the boy that cried wolf, but uh, we, pardon the uh, maybe uh, <laughs> unintentional pun, but we, we don't want to be the, the boy that cried wolf. But on the other hand, uh, our patients are the most sensitive ones that are out there because of their immunological condition, lymphopenia, which uh, mm-hmm. interestingly is turning out to be a uh, potentially a real issue with uh, this infection. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And I, I think, you know, here, what can you say? You can, I, I don't know that I can point to any data points for, for, you know, dozens or hundreds of transplant recipients here, but what I think you can point to, can't you, is, is a pretty clear association um, correlating age with morbidity and mortality and similarly an association with sort of comorbid cardiorespiratory function with disease severity and so I think if you extrapolate those two features and what you're talking about in terms of lymphopenia to our transplant recipients, honestly, both solid organ and hematologic, um, you know, you'd have to you'd have to assume that our patients are going to probably be on the much more severe end of the spectrum. And I think that you know behooves us to be incredibly cautious. Yeah, and when I read your article, the one that I really do recommend it uh, in the American Journal of Transplantation just came out a week ago, uh, one of the issues that's uh, brought up is uh, uh, backup plans for recipients requiring evaluation for other reasons if the transplant center is temporarily closed. And it, 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 it really drives home the point that our patients are oftentimes uh, skating on a very thin margin and they need their dialysis if they're getting dialysis. They need their tacrolimus levels checked. And, uh, and and the dance has to be done just right. And, and there isn't a huge margin for error so that if they can't come into the hospital because the clinic is closed or because somebody's recommending that, that they don't come into a healthcare center, then they're at risk. No, I think you're absolutely right. You know, it's, it's one thing to understand the risk for your patient. It's another thing to understand what your institution is going through. You know, one of the I, things that we're trying to do is to some of our some of our managers and some of our operational leaders to say, look, wh- what happens in our facility if we suddenly have like 5, 10, 20% of our staff um, sick or absent? What would that mean in terms of um, what operations we're going to put we're going to be able to continue with, what does it mean in terms of our patients as to whether we want them to turn up to the hospital or not? And if you're a transplant recipient who does need, as you say, sort of repeated lab tests, maybe some dialysis, maybe the periodic bronch or or heart cath, like how do you do that in a way that doesn't necessarily put them at undue risk and yet still keeps them 
uh, still keeps them safe and effectively monitored. And that, that's a challenge. It, and it would be it would be crazy of me to think that I'm going to pre- be able to predict what would happen in a month with coronavirus. I mean, two weeks ago, I couldn't have predicted that probably we were going to be here. But that doesn't mean that you can't think about, hey, for an at-risk patient population who I need to see periodically, what kind of things can I divert away from the clinic? What might I be able to do on telemedicine, for example? What might I be able to do through epic channels better than what I currently do if I really want to try and keep them out of harm's way? Sure, sure. And, and I think it's going to be a good lesson for us moving forward as to what is what are our capabilities in terms of those type of modalities of care. There was mention in the article about targeted screening of patients, visitors, and uh, uh, for opioids of potential donors. Uh, where are we right now in terms of screening capabilities, and where do you expect that we'll be in the next couple of weeks? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. That's a tricky one too. So, <clears throat> you know, I guess you can you can you can subdivide screening into two different types, can't you? There's clinical screening and travel screening on history, and then there's lab screening. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that the the clinical and travel history, gee, we should be doing that right now. You know, we're already cur- encouraging our uh, transplant colleagues here at Duke to really look carefully through their donor histories um, and, frankly, living donor histories of people to sort of say, look, have you traveled? Have you traveled outside the United States? If so, where? And what are you, what were your symptoms as part of your terminal illness if you're a deceased donor? Well, do you have any symptoms now if you're a living donor? And I think that helps us at least stratify are there certain transplant donors who we should say no to or are there certain living potential uh, donors who we can at least defer? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, testing is, the testing is more challenging. So, um, you know, as, as all of your listeners um, would know, Shmuel, the, the hard part is that the testing in the United States has been really restricted. It's been limited so far mainly to the CDC, um, and the CDC testing has been through simple surge requirements limited to people who are sick. It's not been directed at um, potential donors. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Now, that said, really just in the last week, testing has, testing capability has started to broaden both in terms of public health labs having access to testing and frankly some of the university labs beginning to come online thanks to the FDA sort of uh, relaxing some of their lab testing um, sort of requirements. But even then, it's going to be a good number of weeks predictably for any lab to have the capabilities of sort of really going through widespread testing that isn't otherwise going to be channeled towards sick individuals. Mm -hmm. So the idea of a donor screening boy, we'd, we'd love to be able to do it, um, but I don't know that there's the surge capacity anytime soon for, for us to be offering that. Mm-hmm. Separate to that, it's one thing for me to understand the performance characteristics of that test in a living individual who's presenting with an illness. Mm-hmm. It's a very different issue to, to think that we understand the performance characteristics of a test on a, on a potential deceased donor. Um, I don't think we know how those tests would perform in that, in that setting. Um, you're, you're talking about uh, maybe uh, poor specificity or or, uh, or or more to the point, poor sensitivity or maybe oversensitivity. Well, I think you could go both ways. And there's, you know, there's pretty substantial um, consequences for 
for false negatives and false positives in that context. You know, a false negative in someone who has a good travel screen wouldn't would uh, you know could equally be just as calamitous to a to a surgical team or a procurement team, let alone a future recipient. Mm-hmm. If you chose to procure the lungs of someone who had uh, you know last week flown out of Seoul, South Korea. Um, you got to be sensitive to the fact that you're going to expose a whole bunch of your operating room staff, let alone the recipient. Um, and, and there was a report, I believe, uh, I've just seen it in, in the mass media, not a, a published report, about a uh, transplant donor potentially having uh, the infection. Yeah, I've only seen it in, in um, mass media as well, uh, at least the reports that I was seeing were from colleagues who were able to translate Korean, which I certainly sure as heck cannot. Um, it appears that there was someone who was a living liver donor, which of course happens more frequently in East Asia than it does for us. But mm-hmm. the person at the time at least appeared that they um, were either unaware of their symptoms or underappreciated their risk. And yet after transplant, in fact, tested positive. As best I can tell, um, the recipient seemed to be doing fine, but that was, you know, that's only lay press reports so far. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, understanding a little bit more um, about transplant-related implications here will be hugely important. And I would, you know, I would challenge your listeners to say, if you inadvertently or 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 or, or otherwise find that recipients or don't or their donors have tested positive, boy, please report that into the into either the OPTN system if it's a donor-related problem or simply into the public press if it's a recipient who comes down with coronavirus because I don't think we have a great understanding yet of how they're going to respond clinically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are excellent points. Now, switching gears a little bit uh, about treatment. So uh, there is a trial going on, I understand, with a drug, I'm going to try to pronounce it correctly, remdesivir, a drug that mm-hmm. I'm going to admit I had never heard of until a few weeks ago. Um, and uh, do you know anything about what's going on with that trial? Uh, well, they're trying to set it up here in the United States. Um, that you know, Readers can read a little bit about the sort of N equals one of the first United States case uh, who presented in Washington State a few weeks ago. <clears throat> you know, that individual started to get better after he was given remdesivir, but whether that was, of course, true, true or unrelated, you'll never know with an N equals one. Mm-hmm. My understanding is that that has also been rolled out um, with Gilead's help for a study in China and that there was anticipation that maybe we'll actually start knowing some preliminary results of that study and a similar one using Kaletra, um within the next couple of weeks. Um, but at this stage, you know, there's not enough cases in the United States or, frankly, elsewhere in the developed world where you might expect good um, studies to take place for, for us to comment, I think, at this point. Would I try and get access to it if I saw a patient tomorrow who, who was sick? Um, you know, it's probably it's probably worth keeping in, the, in your back pocket. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think we've hit a wide range of topics, and uh, we're at 22 minutes and 47 seconds. Uh, um, anything else that you think that we should talk about uh, um, and uh, the the reality is that uh, a part of what we're talking about is already going to be outdated in a couple of weeks but I think it's still worth the effort yeah I mean I just think the biggest you're, you're absolutely right heck even when we wrote that article 
um, we, we got an accelerated publication in order to put something out into the literature that we think is impactful for transplant centers, knowing full well, however, that by the time it was published, it would already be a little bit out of date. But I think it becomes, going back to what you said earlier about sort of understanding your local epidemiology and can your transplant recipients be at sort of unique exposure here, I do think it's incumbent upon us to know the people, to, sorry, to know the amount of disease that you have in your community. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And that's going to change. You know, here we are today um, with numbers of cases starting to increase in the United States. And there's going to be some centers in Seattle, for example, who have to look really carefully at their donor pools um, and have really careful education messages to their recipients. Mm-hmm, now, those of us mm-hmm. on the East Coast may have a little bit of wiggle room still, but but it really behooves us to be very aware of the circulating spread in our area. Well, this has been enormously helpful, and uh, I, I, I really appreciate you taking the time from a very busy schedule and preparing things to speak with us today. And thank you for joining our podcast today. Until next time, bye-bye.